Hello, welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. Today's podcast is all about the Windrush scandal, one of the most important human rights issues that's arisen in recent years, bringing out some really difficult truths about the Home Office. And who better to talk about the Windrush scandal than my two guests, Ramya Jadev, who is the co-founder of the advocacy group Windrush Lives, and Anthony Williams, who is a victim, and as you'll hear, remains a victim of the Windrush scandal. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. With Goldsmiths' rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you can study with students and academics passionate about criminal justice, human rights, politics and law within a framework of social justice. If you like the Better Human podcast, please leave a positive review wherever you get your podcast from and go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com where you can give a few pounds a month to help make this podcast sustainable. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Ramya. It's really great to have you on and a very topical time to be talking about the Windrush scandal, although sadly it's been in the news more than it's been out of the news in the past few years. I thought it'd be useful to start with just for those listening who might know about it in the sort of general sense or might not know very much. Can you give a recap of what the Windrush scandal is about? So when we say Windrush scandal, we commonly refer to the set of events that commenced around the end of uh, 2017, which was when there started to be reports, media reports, led by journalists such as um, Nadine White, Amelia Gentleman and so forth, about a specific type of person, which was usually an older person, usually of Afro-Caribbean descent, um, who had either arrived as a child uh, from the Caribbean in the 50s, 60s and 70s, or had parents who uh, who had done so, and suddenly found themselves in the early or mid-2010s, suddenly found themselves the subject of a home office action to do with their status and their right to belong in the country. These were people who assumed all their lives that they had the right to remain here because those were the terms under which uh, they entered the country and no one had told them any different. And there was never any indication that they were in some way lacking or um you know about to be subjected to the kind of treatment that they then were. When um, status was taken away from these people, they rapidly found that they were unable to access housing, healthcare, um, they were unable to travel, obviously, uh, and in some cases they uh, were deported. So one of the famous stories um, is that of Anthony Bryan. Um, people may be familiar with the film Sitting in Limbo. That is um, the account of what happened to him and basically having lived in the UK all of his life, he suddenly found himself post-2010 told that he didn't have the right to work here anymore and his employer had to let him go because they had had notification from the Home Office that if they continued to employ him, they would be liable to a fine. Um, And so he was let go from his job and then rapidly um, the situation deteriorated. The Home Office detained him and tried to deport him twice with a break in between and his uh, family had to raise funds to support him through that and it was just a, a very harrowing situation which was very well captured in the film so that that's a kind of typical example of um of what we think of as the Windrush scandal um it, it's actually slightly fuzzier than that in reality because there are there are several other groups of people who whose stories intersect with the circumstances that I've described. who don't follow the exact same pattern, but have been swept up in the same type of home office action, including, I was alarmed to find, um, people who were born in the UK and have held multiple UK passports with no problem before, um, who in the 2010s found uh, that they too were suddenly told that they had no right to remain. Um, In the two cases that I'm thinking of, uh, 
the claimant applied for a for a passport renewal, just a standard renewal, having done that several times before, um, and found themselves with their passports confiscated and the Home Office saying, you, you don't actually, you don't have a right to have a passport, you don't have a right to, to remain in this country. And so, so I guess what I'm trying to put across is that it's a slightly larger and more ambiguous group of people than perhaps we understand um, at first flush. Just going back to the very beginning um, and to 1948, where does this expression Windrush come from? What, what was the Windrush? Um, the Empire Windrush was a ship that brought over i must apologize if i've got the country i think it was from jamaica brought over the um one of the earliest set of migrants from the west indies basically uh into the uk um there was after the war i'm speaking in very broad terms here but after the war there were labor shortages and um but there was a need for migrants, I think, as there has been uh, many times in our history. Um, and so because the Caribbean countries were part of the empire, that there were no restrictions on their ability to come over here and work. And so it became very beneficial to our government to incentivize lots of people to come over and set up their families here and work here and contribute. And one of the themes that you'll find with Windrush victims is that either they or their parents often worked in essential services such as the NHS or engineering, you know, um, with the the railway network or with building companies um so th there is another sort of a theme there of the even with respect to the type of work that um these people ended up doing when they came over so so yeah the empire windrush is a ship basically and um, um it's not entirely clear to me how that ended up being synonymous with the group of people that we that we're thinking of i think it might have something to do with photographs from that time and the empire windrush being one of the ships that is pictured in some of the more common um some of the more commonly available photographs at that time um but yeah, but, but that that's basically where the, where the nomenclature um, arises. Well, I, I've got a little crib note here, so I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to tell you what 802 migrants arrived on the Empire Windrush, um, which indeed did dock in Kingston, Jamaica, en route to Tilbury. Um, and many many of the ship's passengers were Afro-Caribbean, and they became known as the Windrush generation. Um, but that but that wasn't that's not just the people that came from the Windrush <laughs> ship. It's people who came all the way up to I think it's 1972 when this yeah. scheme of allowing citizens of the colonies, as they were at the time, to yeah. to to um, come to the UK as citizens. Um, and I guess they were subjects, and they became citizens of the UK. Yeah. Um, and, and then, as you say, the, the um, these cases started arising. Can you tell us about, I think, the, the, the other piece of the puzzle, the more recent piece of the puzzle, is the hostile environment, what's, what's known as hostile environment. Can you just talk a bit about that hostile environment? The hostile environment, if we want to be very... Um, it was be very narrow in definition. The hostile environment was a policy described by Theresa May, who was then Home Secretary uh, in the first Cameron administration, um, who the policy was basically to make it as difficult as possible, in very broad terms, make it as difficult as possible for a category of migrants that the Home Office decided wasn't really, it wasn't particularly important to retain them. In fact, in order to meet net migration statistics, it would be rather helpful if they weren't here anymore. Um, to make it as difficult as possible for them to exist. Um, now, what do I mean by exist? Make it really difficult for them to access services, to access housing, and most importantly, to hold down jobs, because obviously, you know, all of those conditions will mean that your life is basically intolerable and you, you might want to go back to either your country of origin or somewhere else. So it was a very blunt instrument um, designed, well, I don't know if it was designed specifically by Theresa May, but it was certainly put forward by her. So I, I, it's unclear whether the Windrush generation were the specific targets of that. W what is clear is that 
that became the fact. So, you know, whether or not that was the principle, that was certainly what happened in practice. Um, and so in the story that I described earlier, um, Anthony Bryan, uh, th there's a perfect, there's a piece of that that perfectly encapsulates the whole thing. So one of the core policies uh, of the hostile environment was to require employers to effectively act as an outpost of um, the border agency to get them to check up on their employees uh, immigration status by way of saying um, that if, if employers weren't able to ensure that uh, that their employees had the right to remain, then they would be fined by the Home Office. So it was quite a, you know, that that's that's quite a motivating policy for employers. Um, and so it became. So Anthony Bryan's in the film Sitting in Limbo, you'll see that Anthony Bryan's employer, um, having employed him for many years, sort of very sadly says to him, you know, I wish it was different, but they're saying they'll come after us. So I'm really sorry. And that's a, that's a situation that was replicated all over the place. We know someone else. Um, called Glenda Caesar, who worked as an administrator in the NHS for around 20 years at that point, and was very well respected, very accomplished at her job, who again was called in one day by uh, her managers and told, um, look, I'm really sorry about this, but my hands are tied. I can't do anything about it. So, I mean, when, when we say hostile environment, we think quite narrowly of those examples. But th there is a broader sense in which the term is used, which is to describe immigration policy and immigration rhetoric really over the past 30 to 40 years, um, which has always, even independently of Theresa May's specific hostile environment policy, the, the sort of attitude that we have towards migrants, towards people who we have needed at some point, and we have said, please come here and help us. Like, you know, we can't, we can't do this without you. We've said this to them. And when they've become inconvenient for us, you know, later, maybe 20, 30 years down the line, when politically they've become inconvenient for us because, you know, the governing party or whatever has made certain promises uh, we then seek to find ways to you know nudge them out i mean there's nudge theory which is i think um, a well-known thing uh, a sort of way of uh, basically subtly and perhaps not uh, overtly compelling people to do things which are quite negative and it's a sort of example of that you know slowly edging them out of society and um the, the two are used to some extent interchangeably. I mean, I certainly use them interchangeably because the, the fundamental thing that they're describing is the same thing, which is uh, hostility um, towards other. And I'm sort of doing scare quotes around that, which is because it, it, I mean other in the sort of capital O sense, you know, anyone who's not of British origin, shall we put it that way, of the very old-fashioned understanding of what British is, which basically relates to colour, class, that sort of thing. Yeah, and 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 we'll talk about the, we'll talk a bit later about the relevance of race um, in in that in that whole picture. But before we do this issue of the the Windrush scandal, what became known as the Wind, Windrush scandal, started popping up in the media. I guess late two thousand seventeen. And 2018, I think in, in April 2018, it was revealed that thousands of landing cards that verified arrival dates and therefore legal status of the Windrush generation had been destroyed by the Home Office during an office move um, and, and lots of other stories like that. But what, what was it that brought you into this issue um, and led to the setting up of Windrush Lives? Oddly enough, it was COVID. So, I mean, I was aware of um, the Windrush scandal in a sort of sort of high-level way just from reading the newspapers. Um, around about mid-2020, I was on furlough and um, casting around for things to do. And this was the time uh, when there were quite a lot of Black Lives Matter protests and um you know there was a need for people to observe and kind of record what was happening at those protests so i was sort of involved in that a little bit and from that um 
I sort of branched out into other issues affecting the black community, I suppose. And um, I just came across an article complete, completely uh, by accident, came across an article by Amelia Gentleman describing the story of Anthony Williams, who you're going to speak to a little bit later. And it, it, I found it really harrowing for a number of reasons. First of all, the set of circumstances that he faced was um, dystopian. The fact, the idea that the series of events that occurred to him could occur to anyone, I just found that utterly like chilling to my core. Um, it was also very visceral because of the harm he suffered. Again, I'll leave him to talk about that, but there's something particularly sort of scary about the physical harm that he endured as a result of, as a direct result um, of being wrapped up in the Windrush scandal. And third, um, I have a slight connection to the hostile environment myself. Uh, I'm a migrant. Um, I was born in Singapore, again, so an ex-colony. Uh, and I came here as a student um, in the first instance. In around 2008, uh, so before, and the important thing to note there is before the Conservative government. So this is what I mean when I say the hostile environment broadly actually extends beyond, well beyond Theresa May. Um, in around 2008, I was um, applying for what was at the time known as a post-study work visa. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, and my application was rejected on one of the most stupid technicalities, which was that I, I sent them an academic transcript instead of a degree certificate um, because the degree certificate hadn't been awarded yet. And rather than uh, calling me up or sending me a letter or an email saying, could you please submit your degree certificate? They rejected the application and sent me back a letter similar, I think, uh, but less scary to what many of the Windrush generation would have endured, which said, your application has been rejected. You have no right to remain in this country. And in big, bold type, um, you, you are now subject to removals actions, to, sorry, to a removal action. Um, and if you don't exit the country by, I can't remember the date it was, if you don't leave by then, um, you will be sub subject to immigration detention and deportation. Um, and the reason that was given for rejecting the application was because I'd submitted my degree transcript instead of my degree certificate, that constituted a failure to satisfy the English language requirement. It, it, it's the most sort of senseless interpretation of a rule certainly that I had encountered up to that time. But because of this tiny little technicality, which is in, in my mind still, I would say, meaningless, because the end effect of the document that I did submit is the same thing as what they were looking for. But anyway, um, because of this tiny technicality, not only had they rejected the application, they had sent this extremely aggressive, threatening letter, knowing that, you know, someone had applied and was expecting really to be given permission to stay and had been in this country for a number of years at that point, came from a colony and really it was quite likely that they did speak English. Um, knowing all of that had nevertheless pursued this extremely aggressive action. So when I started reading about stories like Anthony's, it immediately called that back to mind. And I suppose that took root in me quite deeply because I know what the hostile environment is. And I didn't kind of put those things together until that point. But it then struck me that all of these people who were born in this country, some of them, but certainly who had lived in this country since a very young age, worked here, raised families here, you know, much stronger ties than I had. All of these people were systematically being picked out and being told in, in those terms that they had no right to remain and they had to get out. And I remember the absolutely paralyzing fear that I um, experienced when, when I received that. I mean, it was six months, basically, just only six months that it took for me to sort it out. I had to go to court, but I remember what it felt like in those six months. Every waking minute was 
you were unsure, you know, what was going to happen. Everything felt like it was hanging in the air. You couldn't really commit to doing anything. You couldn't really sort of go out and look for a job or go and sort of hang out with your friends and feel happy. Everything felt like it was at risk all the time. And I suppose it just it struck me that all of these people were being subjected to that, but much worse and for a much longer period. And, you know, and they had all these much stronger ties to the country than I did. And, you know, it just seemed to me, uh, it, 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 it dystopian is the word I would use. I mean, it seemed to me like something out of a Korean horror series, if that makes sense. I mean, that's a, 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 an amazing description. Um, but having just sat through Squid Game while I, while I was ill in bed, I can, um, I, I, you've given me a, a good, important frame of reference. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable. And I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. But I think that's also a good jumping off point to ask Anthony about his story and about what happened to him. So welcome, Anthony, onto the podcast. Thanks for having me anyway. Anthony, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about your experiences of the Windrush scandal. Um, how did this come into your life? Um, 20, 2013, yeah, I can remember that day in 2013. And when I turned up at work one morning, I've only been in the job a couple of them um, about six weeks. Um, to be told by my HR manager that um, that that my immigration status was um, was no good. Um, they couldn't find any records of me being in the country. And, and what what was your work at the time? At the time, um, it, it was just a menial job, really. I was working at, at, at what we call the IOC, which is an International Cleaning Company. And, and and what had been your background? So how how did you? When did you arrive in the UK? And and what did you do up to that point? I arrived in the UK in 1971 to join my parents. Um, it, that's how it worked in the Caribbean in, the, in those days. The parents would come to the UK, first of all, just to settle in and then send for the kids. So I arrived here in 1971 with my younger sister. And how, old, to, how old were you at that time? Um, seven. My younger sister was about three, four. Went to school here, did all my schooling here. In the 70s, um, I used to watch a lot of TV in the 70s. There was much, not much to do, especially being new into the country. And there's lots of war movies used to be on the TV. So at the end of my school in the 1970s to 1980s, I decided to join the army. Spent 13 years in the army. Um, good times, bad times, enjoyed it. Um, I'm actually proud that I actually served, served my country anyway, which I thought was my country. <laughs> so um, spent 13 years in the army, came out of the army, had a number of jobs throughout, and then came to 2013. I then moved back to Birmingham to sort of reconnect with my family because being in the army, I moved around quite a bit. So I sort of disconnected from my family over the years. So I went to reconnect with my family. And that's why I moved back to Birmingham. And then the hostile environment, um, I came across the hostile environment once I moved back to Birmingham. And so let's go back to 2013. So you were just getting on with your life. As far as you knew, you were a citizen of the UK. In fact, you were a citizen of yeah. the UK because you come as a child. But all of a sudden you were being told you weren't. Yeah. It, it, it totally it totally destroyed me. I remember leaving work and coming back home and I just sat at, I just sat at home and just thinking, no, there's got to be something wrong here. There has to be something wrong here. And I, I, just, could not, I just could not work it out because as far as I was concerned, 13 years in the British Army and I've travelled around all around the world and then all of a sudden I'm stateless. And it took me a couple of days to actually try and work, out, think, work things out. And even then... I hadn't worked things out at all because when I when I tried to sign on, went to DWP, I was told couldn't sign on because again, they have no records of me being in the country. So you can't get any kind of social security or benefits because, no. you, as far as the records are, you're not a citizen. Yeah, as far as they're concerned, I did not exist. Yeah, and 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 you had had you had passports? I mean, you you were in the army, presumably that there must have you must have had a passport. Yeah, while while I was in the army, I still traveled on my Jamaican passport. Yeah. 
what the funny thing about that, when I was in Germany, um, I, I got posted to uh, Central America and I needed a passport to travel to Central America. The army actually renewed my Jamaican passport and actually put indefinitely to remain in my passport anyway, just in case. So when it came to actually uh, producing identification in 2013, I couldn't because my passport was out of date. Plus I lost it because I didn't, I didn't think I, had, I needed it. I didn't think I needed to keep it for any reasons. Because nobody expects this kind of thing to happen to them when they arrived at seven, when they're age seven um, into the country. Exactly. And yeah. don't forget, back, back, back in those days, all you needed really when you're looking for work was um, a national insurance number and some kind of photo ID or even a letter with your, pre, with your new address on it to get by. And then all of a sudden, bang, you needed more, which I didn't have. And can you talk about the impact that had on your life? So, so you went to sign on and you found that you couldn't. You'd been working. What did you? What happened after that? I, I was devastated. I didn't know what to do because the problem was as well. I just moved into a new flat, and all the money I had put aside to buy furniture, cooker, fridge, and all those things, all of a sudden I need that money for other things. So straight away I didn't have no furniture, I had no curtains, I had no carpet, and the only thing I had was a small TV and the couch to sleep on. At that time, I really couldn't afford the heating as well. Um, it just ruined my whole life. And then I discovered another thing. I was denied access to health treatment, healthcare. I lost all access to the NHS. So, so you couldn't get medical treatment. Did you need medical treatment in that time? Yes, because I started to develop some pains in my stomach anyway at about that time as well. And um, I didn't have a clue what it was. Um, for days, weeks of one walking around, wondering what this pain was, couldn't work it out. In the end, I went to my local pharmacy and I spoke to the pharmacist and I gave them my symptoms and they worked out my IBS. So for about four years, I was walking around thinking I had IBS, which only earlier on this year, I found out what it really was. And what it was, I had a, I had a bacteria growing in my stomach which then led to an infection, which then led to stomach ulcers. So for four years, couldn't eat, couldn't sleep. At one point, I'd, I'd lost about half a stone in weight and I didn't have a clue what was going on. And then I developed another problem <laughs> where I got a, what, what I thought was a gum infection. And every couple of months, my, my gums would get inflamed and I started losing my teeth. And it got bad, I made a decision because if there's it it a short-term pain, or long-term pain. So I decided to remove my teeth myself because I couldn't get into a dentist because I had no access. You, you decided to remove your teeth yourself? Yes, I had to. No choice because every couple of months the infections kept coming back. So drinking water became a problem. Eating became a problem. I had to survive. So um, I did what had to be done. Well, you know, Ramya spoke about um you know a south korean horror um series and and you know what what i'm hearing here is not far off you know what people might think is something from another time or from another world but you know th those years must have just been been you know a, a genuine nightmare for you yeah I, I, it, it was hard right because after serving time in the British army i'm thinking to myself what have I done wrong? What have I done wrong? And you, well, you they, did nothing. Nothing wrong is the answer, isn't it? But well, well, I didn't know that, yeah. and my mind, my mind is playing against me all of the time. And I, I used to sit in my flat days, and then looking at the brick wall and just staring at the wall for hours. And then I used to wake up. I, I might get a bit emotional as I'm going along, by the way. But I used to wake up at four o'clock in, in the middle in the mornings and look out the window. It's been dark, especially in the winter. Put my gear on, go for a run at four o'clock in the morning, and it? And that caused a problem within itself because a black man running around in my area at four o'clock in the morning, after four o'clock, and on occasion I used to get stopped by the police. <laughs> and I, I used to get back from a run, do a bit of a workout in my flat, and then I'd spend hours looking out my window and watching people going to work, coming back from work. I used to spend hours walking the streets. It is, um, I used to spend hours sitting in the, in the library as well because Especially in the winter when it's really, really cold in my flat. I had nothing but nothing else to do but go up to the library, sit around the library until I fall asleep. And then, then because I fall asleep in the library, and the security guards in the library then kicked me out. 
<laughs> because you're not allowed to sleep in the library, you see, because for whatever reasons. But it's just, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's, just, it's just, I just went to survival mode and they've answered my front door when anyone knocked my doors. Um, when, when um, especially when the elections came around and you have everyone knocking on my door, putting posters through my doors and all that kind of things. Because I didn't know what was going on. I really, really didn't know what was going on. But the benefit bit, when, when I applied the benefits and it turned around and they sent the letter, and on the letter it said, person from another country. That's how I was labeled, person from another country. And that really ripped me apart because I'm thinking, person from another country, what they're trying to tell me, I'm stateless. I couldn't leave the country and I couldn't live in the country. <laughs> so. I'm going to ask Ramya now to pick up the story and then I'll come back to you, Anthony, if I can. R- Ramya, as these press articles and media attention started to focus on what became known as the Windrush scandal, the Home Office eventually um, set up a scheme, the Windrush compensation scheme. Can you tell us about that, what, what, what it was and what it is and, and how it worked or how it was meant to work? So there were two schemes. So the first was what is known as the Windrush scheme, and that was basically to give people their um, status documents, and in most cases to give them either indefinite leave to remain or their British passport. Uh, and that in general is thought of as being having been quite successful, although there are still some leftover problems. And we think that there's actually still a, a huge contingent of people that haven't been given their status correctly in line with the Windrush scheme anyway. But the Windrush Compensation Scheme was announced in 2018, mid-2018. Uh, Home Secretary at the time, uh, Sajid Javid, is Amber Rudd had resigned, and Sajid Javid uh, announced the scheme, uh, I recall, to moderate fanfare, because having discovered that it had made this catalogue of errors and a systematic um harassment basically of um of mainly elder Afro-Caribbean people, but also people of um, African descent in general. Uh, having discovered it, the government was now saying, okay, we're going to try and put it right. We're going to we're going to fix it. We're going to learn lessons and we're going to right the wrongs. Um, and as part of that, we're going to give people compensation. We're going to, you know, make good basically for the damage that we've done. Um, and it was announced in 2018 and it was launched, I think it was opened for the first applications in first quarter, I think, of 2019, April 2019. And actually, Anthony was one of the first people to put his application in. And, um, you know, if I can just jump out of chronology there, it is the 25th of November 2021 as we speak, and he hasn't had his full compensation yet. He was one of the first people to put it in, and and he has not yet um, had his claim resolved. Um, The scheme was I think in retrospect, even the Home Office admits that it wasn't ready for um for the scheme. It wasn't it wasn't set up. It really wasn't ready to accept applications. But nevertheless it did. Um when I met Anthony, um as I said, it was mid-2020, and at the time he hadn't received anything at all. I think he'd had confirmation, and Anthony will correct me if I'm wrong, I think he'd had confirmation that his application had been received and it was being dealt with in some way, but that was it. He'd had absolutely nothing else. And about a month or two after um, after we first started talking and trying to figure out what we were going to do about this, um, he received his very first offer. And um, and he, he sent it across um, over email. And I remember looking at it and thinking, you know, I'm not an ex- expert on compensation schemes at all. Like I have no formal or informal experience with determining amounts offered. I mean, I have the kind of basic knowledge of uh, of how these things work from from law school, but I have no real world experience of, of how these things are determined. But I, I remember looking at that very first offer and thinking, that this is this is messed up. I mean, there is absolutely no way that you can look at someone who had to sit in his living room with a bottle of vodka and pull his own teeth out with a knife. There is absolutely no way you can look at that person and say that, that 
sum total that we're placing on the harm that you experienced was, what was it, £18,000? Eighteen and a half thousand. Eighteen and a half thousand pounds. Is that to compensate you for, presumably you're, you're talking five years of, mi- of not being able to work, the pain and suffering of the losing your teeth, of the um, stomach infection, um, the, well, I mean, I- I'm guessing some sort of, you know, damage mental torture i was gonna i was trying to think of a of a of a uh uh, of a subtle way of putting it but yeah absolutely mental inhuman and degrading treatment so that's what that eighteen thousand pounds was meant to do and and also i guess you know for for now you've missed those years your earning potential going forward is going to be is going to be inevitably less because you've missed that 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 long pension all of that is is am i, am I right in thinking that's what it's meant to compensate yes yeah well, well that's, i mean i can tell you as somebody who's done lots of you know these kind of cases you know p- personal injury clinical negligence that sort of thing human rights claims that is a really paltry amount oh, if i yeah, was advising yeah. if i was advising a client you know with with given what's happened to you that i wouldn't accept i wouldn't advise to take it <laughs> I, mean, I don't know no, your well, situation exactly, but it does sound. I'm just trying to give context for people listening. You might think, "Oh, eighteen thousand—that's quite a lot," but that is five years and potentially more of somebody's life ruined. Well, when I when I, when I, when I opened the letter and uh, and um, I didn't read it all, I just went to the eighteen and a half thousand, and I just sat down and I cried. What 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 was your what did you feel at that time? Devastated. Worth nothing. Yeah. What's the point? I wouldn't say I was su- su- suicidal, but I, but I did think at one point, what's the point? What's the eight and a half grand going to get me? Um, I, I, I had my dental issues I, I had to think about because, again, back in 2018, when I did get my citizen back, I actually took on a job at the Royal Mail. Uh, it, it was actually actually a good job. I didn't mind it. It was a no-brainer. All I had to do was turn up, have a look at parcels and pa- pass them along, pass them along. So it was a no- no-brainer to me after, after those five years. But then people started noticing my appearance and they started making comments about my appearance. And after about 13, 14 weeks, I just gave it up because I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, couldn't take it anymore. Um, in, in my flat, I don't have any mirrors in my flat because I, I hated looking at my reflections. And was that and was that because you didn't you didn't have your top teeth? I had virtually none of my teeth. You had virtually because I'm looking at you now on the Zoom. The people oh. won't be able to see it, and and you look great. But I'm guessing, I'm guessing that those are those are not your your real teeth. No, 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 no. They're, they're, no. they're dental implants. Yeah. So 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 you so you were being uh, uh, the torture continued into your new job. Yeah, all the way. Even, even walking down the streets, walk. And glance at your reflections in, in in shop windows and stuff like that. Even even going shopping, I used to go to supermarkets. I mean, I used to go to turn up at the supermarkets in the morning with the staff, <laughs> just to make sure I'm getting the supermarkets early, just that I didn't have to see people or speak to people. Um, I went I went virtually a year without speaking to people. I wouldn't. I couldn't do it. I lost my confidence. I remember actually when I first read um, about Anthony and what I did, like I got in touch with the author of the articles, Amelia Gentleman, and um, she said, "Look, I'm not, you know, I, I I can't really help you a lot, but I'll ask him if he's happy to be put in touch with you." And um, and Anthony for some reason agreed, um, and so I got his email address and we started talking. I remember I remember when I first started talking to him, he. In conversations, he would say, "I, I, I you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't really talk to people much. I mean, I don't really know. What do you think?" The, the change in him over the past couple of years has been, over the past year rather, um, has been immeasurable, and it's all been for the, you know, for the, for the better. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is, even. Even in 2019, um, at which point his status had already been granted, um, and he was—it was just a compensation that was outstanding. Even then, the effect that all of this had on him was still extremely pronounced. I mean, the, the set of circumstances that he's, he's describing, basically being marginalised and kind of driven into the shadows. This isn't something I think that. Um, 
absolutely everyone in society can relate to, but it's something that anyone who's encountered the hostile environment can relate to. And I think it's increasingly something that anyone um, anyone who's black or brown um, can sort of identify and relate to, which is that you're standing. So in the law, obviously, you have the concept of standing to appear in front of a court. And, you know, it, it's quite a narrow thing. It means like you, you, basically your existence. But in a social sense, um, and I suppose in a psychological sense, we derive our sense of stability and our sense of what the world is from our engagement with other people and with institutions. I mean, life is basically a collection of environments in which you work, in which you, you know, play and you kind of do recreational activities and you have a family. Like that, that's basically, in, in one sense, that's basically what life is. And what the effect of all this is to basically completely extract and just remove big parts of those environments. So your life becomes smaller, that there's less going on. And it's, you know, I mean, I, I'm sort of kind of taking my cue here from Anthony and others that others that we know and who are members of our network, but but what they often describe is a sense of losing losing purpose and sort of not really having a purpose to live. And and you know, luckily it didn't affect Anthony in that way, but there are other people that it has driven right to the brink of suicide. I mean, we know a few people who have attempted suicide and it uh, I, I cannot begin to describe to you how enraging it is that 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 a government, that a state, could be able to should be able to do that, um, what well, to anyone, but especially to its own citizens, to people to whom it actively owes a duty of care. It, it, yeah, I mean, it's dystopian. I keep saying I keep saying this word, but that that's mm -hmm. it is dystopian. Mm -hmm. That there's no other way to describe it. You know, it, isolation is a funny thing, really, because if you choose to isolate yourself, that's fine because you choose to do it. But when it's forced onto you. It, 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 it's confusing. It's 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 tiring. It's it takes all your energies. It's <laughs> it's hard, it's really really hard to describe it. Really, because even now I can sit here and I can laugh about some of the stuff that happened to me back in 2013, 2014, or whatever. But at the time, there are serious things going on in my mind and going on with me, and <laughs> it's it's. You know, you, you, you get, I, I couldn't plan weeks at a time. I had to plan hours at a time, days at a time. That's, that's how I had to work, you know what I mean? Um, and one of the ways I actually find surviving really is actually going out on, out on the street and talking to homeless people. And, 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 homeless, and believe, even though I wasn't homeless, I learned a lot of things off them. Like simple things like walking the streets early in the mornings when people are drunk because they drop money and, and stuff, stuff like that. And I had to do things like that to survive. Walking around scrounging, you know what I mean? And and asked me years and years ago if I thought I'd be doing things like that. And I said no. But and again, I'm 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 glad I joined the army really because my army training helped me to survive. If I hadn't had my army training, there's no way I would have survived. So, sounds to me, Anthony, like you had your humanity taken away from you. That's what you call it. <laughs> That's what you call it. I mean, Ramya, can we pick up that the wider picture again? So Anthony's case, it sounds like, was typical um, based on some a number of critical reports. Um, and we can talk about the, the new one from the um, Home Affairs Committee um, and the House of Commons. But it sounds like Anthony's case, this sort of paltry offer, this diff these difficulties were, were pretty typical of what was going on um, with the scheme. Yeah. So um, as with uh, as with the sort of primary issue, which was that when all of these people were told that they didn't have the right to remain, they would say, what do you mean I, didn't, I don't have the right to remain? Like, it, I've lived here all my life. Here are my, you know, here are my school records. Um, here are testimonials from friends that I've known since I was five and six. Uh, people were submitting this type of evidence to, you know, to try and prove that they had been here all their lives. And the Home Office would often refuse to recognise it, would, would just not believe them. It, it, it would sort of go on this well you know i 
I don't really know. I mean, I don't I don't trust what you're saying, basically. And that general attitude was just carried over into the compensation scheme. So what happened was um, Anthony, in the first instance, uh, wrote and submitted his own application. And he did it uh, in good faith based on what he was told at the time and what everyone was told, which was that people could submit their own applications. And, uh, you know, it was straightforward. It was simple. Just fill in the form, send it in, and you'll get some money. Um, The form, if you look at it, is very open-ended. And as a lawyer, you'll know alarm bells will be going off like when there aren't lots of specific questions you know actually that what what this thing is setting up for is a problem because whatever you submit you're (laughs) going to get a response saying "Mm, you didn't quite answer the questions we were asking for so that's something that you will know as a lawyer but people who are applying to the scheme aren't generally lawyers and to begin with had no legal assistance. So they were doing this themselves. And six months later, you know, whenever it was that the Home Office got to their application, it would turn around and say, oh, you haven't submitted enough evidence. Like, I don't I, I don't believe the claim that you're making about unemployment. And unemployment is an interesting one because Aside from, so there are several, there are 13 categories in total under which you can be compensated. By and large, the biggest one, the one that uh, results in the sort of largest amount of money is is a general category, I suppose, called impact on life, which is meant to capture really, I guess, the loss of humanity, um, but, you know, sort of slightly more in a slightly more discreet way, you know, kind of broke down into specific effects. Um, the next largest one for most people is a category known as loss of access to employment. Now, the category is called loss of access to employment, but certainly to begin with, what would happen is you would get replies from caseworkers saying, oh, I've got no evidence that you worked in that place, so you know, I'm just going to disregard it. Now, obviously what happened was when their status was taken away, um, the claimant was unable to get a job. So what they were effectively asking was for evidence to prove a negative, right? I need evidence of the fact that you applied for jobs and didn't get those jobs. And so claimants were basically told to go off to places they had applied for jobs, which had rejected them or never responded, and get evidence from those uh, from those employers saying, I, I would have employed this person, but for the fact that I, you know, I knew that they didn't have a status document. Now, that's that's patently absurd. Um, and yet, actually, th- there are a few cases in which people were able to do that. Um, in one memorable case, it was Sainsbury's, oddly enough, um, that... Uh, supplied a letter of evidence saying we would have hired this guy but you told us we couldn't because um he didn't have a status document and this person submitted all of that with his claim and still got back an offer for less than he would have earned in a year of not having been employed and so the 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 culture of disbelief basically is pervasive. It runs through every aspect of the scheme. Well, it's the it's the Home Office, isn't it? The Home Office has well, a culture. Yeah. As a, anybody that's ever dealt with the Home Office in any context, exactly. Um, you know, it, it's it's a it's a government department which is powered by a culture of disbelief. That's the way that they manage in the in many immigration cases I've done. That's the way they manage immigration. Is that I mean, for, and, and and I'm. Let, let's put it on the on the table here probably much more from certain countries than others um and 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 maybe with a certain skin colors than others um because oh, be, because if you're an entrepreneur from america you might not be treated in the same in the same way but you know the that culture of disbelief and the hostile environment we've spoken about i mean the, it does raise the question and i know it's a question that's been asked that you've asked in a, in your Guardian article that um, that I read yesterday, um, and just for people who are listening, it's um, called "The Home Office Can't Be Trusted to Properly Compensate Windrush Victims," and it's an absolutely brilliant article and very very well written. And it makes the case that this shouldn't be the Home Office. The Home Office shouldn't be running this scheme because the Home Office 
are the bad guys here. <laughs> you know, they they shouldn't be. It's like I think the example uses like going to a burglar and getting them to compensate you for the money for the stuff they've taken from you. So you know, yes. why why is it being run by the Home Office? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. I mean, my uh, so anyone that you you tell this story to, um, especially just to, you know, just any normal person that you describe these circumstances to, um, when you tell them, uh, the Home Office then set up a compensation scheme. The question is usually, well, how does that work? I mean, this is the person who this is the tort visa. This is the person who did the bad thing, and you're saying they are the people who decide how their own bad things should be. I mean, one way to look at compensation is as a sort of punishment, right? Or that's not, you know, that's not the basis on which it's awarded, but a sort of simplistic way of trying to understand it is you did a wrong thing and now this is the consequence, okay? So punishment, I mean, not in a sort of, you know, retribution sense. I mean, this is the consequence for the bad thing you did. Now, in what in what world do you do you get to decide your own punishment for a terrible thing that you've done? I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous. Um, I I certainly can't make sense of why uh, why the scheme was left at the Home Office. My best guess is that you know they were the only people who I suppose had any connection at all to the affected cohort and you know it, it was just left there rather than anyone really putting any thought into it and saying is this the right thing to do is there someone better to do this and, you know I just don't think those conversations were had at all um, certainly you get a mixed report of what the home office thought it was doing with the compensation scheme right you know right from the start so um glenda who i think i mentioned earlier glenda caesar um was one of the earliest um applicants alongside anthony and she had quite a lot of interaction with the home office in those days in in the early days that is and she recalls being at a meeting with the then um head of the home office um philip rutnam uh whose name you'll recognize for other reasons um in which he said, I think, you know, not in these exact words, but he he led her to believe that once your primary application for status had successfully gone through the Windrush scheme, the information for the compensation team would basically be taken from that. You wouldn't have to go through this whole rigmarole of collecting every little shred of, you know, every every piece of evidence you could ever have about every job you've ever had. You wouldn't have to go through all of that because the Home Office had already dealt with your status and had already reviewed all of that. In the first instance, your compensation would just be determined, you know, based on that. But that, of course, isn't what happened at all. And we now know that <laughs> the compensation scheme is staffed, at, um, not at the junior level, but at the middle management and higher level by people who came over from... Uh, from well from the border from the border security side of things so from the the very same people who were often sending out letters in the early 10s and the late noughties saying you don't have the right to remain here those very same civil servants some of them are now you know administering compensation and and the yeah, I mean, I, I don't know where to begin with this. You know, there have been so one of the um, examples of the uh, contaminated blood scandal. There have been there have been other compensation schemes which have been set up and run by government. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying any of them was particularly a great success. But this specific circumstance wherein the very same people who, you know, who hunted you down and said you have to get out of the country, they were now allowed to look at your documents and say, oh, we think we owe you X amount of money for the horror that we subjected you to. I, you know, I just, yeah. The, the, there's really no sensible explanation for how this happened, and and you know, and that is what the Home Affairs, well, not quite in, not quite in sort of the bellicose way that I've put it, but that's the basic uh, conclusion that the Home Office, the Home Affairs Select Committee has come to, which is that it doesn't really understand why the scheme was ever with the Home Office, and it and it's and it thinks that now the scheme should be taken away from the Home Office. Um, 
and you know, and that this isn't sort of a shocking finding in any way. There have been a number of other organisations that have said the same thing. Um, the National Audit Office, uh, Wendy Williams, who is the Inspector of the Constabulary and I think also the Inspector of HM Fire and Services. I can't remember exactly now, but Wendy Williams is basically uh, Inspector of the Constabulary. She was uh, commissioned um, back, I think, in 2018 to carry out um, a very broad review uh, into everything that had gone wrong um, and caused the Windrush scandal, things that had gone wrong at the Home Office, which had led to that series of events taking place. Um, she issued a, a huge report with, I think it's 36 recommendations, although you'll correct me if I'm wrong, a, a, a substantial number of uh, recommendations anyway, setting out exactly um, the type of policy changes that need to be put in place in order to make sure that nothing like this ever happens again. Uh, the Home Office was supposed to have finished, you know, putting in place those policies by now. Uh, but a couple of months ago, uh, we had a well, a couple of months ago in, in an engagement event that it holds for Windrush victims, it has these sort of regular online events. In one of those events, um, uh, the official, uh, a Home Office official who was that, at that event, sort of very proudly said, we've complied with one of these. Um, we've, we've done one of these and we're very happy with that. <laughs> and actually it's not even clear that they have done that particular one. I can't remember which one it was, but I think it, it was something of, um, it was something of the sort of scale of, we have reviewed the report and, you know, and decided that we need to put these recommendations in place. So uh, the, the point that I'm getting to here um, in, in a roundabout way is that there isn't really I, I don't think there's any independent organization that has looked at what's happened here and said, mm, yes, no, this is great. Do more of this, please. No. Um, yes, you're definitely the right person to not, do this. Not surprising. And yet here we are, because, you know, this is a political problem at this point, but the, the scheme has no teeth, right? There's no statute underpinning it. it, it it's, it's basically a creation of the Home Office. There's no, there's no way, there's no authority or body that can chat. Well, we hope that that's not true at the end of the day, but certainly for the time being, there's no body or authority that can, you know, turn to the Home Secretary and say, right, you've really botched this up. That's it. You're no. done now. Well, maybe, maybe the courts, um, but you know, well, maybe, yeah. and, and, and Anthony, can I just ask you to, to, to finish up? Like, where are you up to now? Right. You don't go to two stages of appeal. Now I'm at tier one review at the moment. So what's actually happening, I've sent my, I've sent my offer back and rejected it. So it's gone back to the caseworkers to actually review. But the problem I have with that is that the person that actually sent me that offer is probably the same person that's going to review it. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. So I've got to go through that process and then it will, it'll come back to me. I will then reject it again. Then it goes to the, in, the, the independent adjudicator which she works for the tax office makes no sense to me have you had any money at all about ten thousand pound which is what you call an interim payment you've had the ten thousand that, that everybody's recommended to get who was yeah, you know yeah. who was subject okay it's really you know anthony hearing all that you know, i have lots of people on this podcast who talk in the sort of general terms about about human rights and about human rights abuses but I think people listening will agree that what you've been through is almost the definition of inhuman and degrading treatment. And I hope that you will, even if it, you know, takes a bit longer and it sounds like it's going to, that you will get justice in the end for yourself. Um, and, and that everybody in your position does because it really is a, a scandal of, of, you know, of historic proportion. But the main the, the thing that we don't have on our side is time. I'm 58 years old now, and I'm pretty I'm pretty fit for my age. But I I know other other victims who are are not in the position I'm in really, and I I, I feel for those people. I really feel for those people. And people have died. Lots of people have died. Is it 20, 20 or so people have died while waiting for compensation payments? Twenty three that are twenty three. Twenty three that are known of. I suspect the true number is much higher. Yeah. The pit will, yeah, depends if they applied or not. Um, all right, well, I'm going to have to leave it there, but I really, I'm so grateful, Ramya and Anthony, um, for giving us the sort of the big picture and the and the 
and the personal story of a true human rights scandal you know in the in the, the real sense of the word so thank you very much and best of luck um to both of you in the work that you're doing thank you thank you thanks so much to both of you bye-bye Bye. so thank you very much to ramya jadev and anthony williams really extraordinary interview and one that i found very difficult um, at times as I hope you heard the better human podcast is supported by goldsmiths law and their pioneering llb undergraduate program taught in london with goldsmiths rich heritage of social awareness and engagement you can study with students and academics passionate about criminal justice human rights politics and law within a framework of social justice if you want to find out more about the Windrush scandal, I'm going to put some links up in the show notes and you can also follow Windrush Lives on Twitter. My name is Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>